I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays because it's the one holiday out of the year where, where, where food is the superstar. It really is. If you're a deer hunter, this is when deer season like really picks up steam. It's a great time for that. Uh, but also of all of the family traditions, uh, how many of you are like me? Do you, how many of you spend your Thanksgiving year after year watching the Cowboys lose? <laughs> but we still watch, don't we? And we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll be watching on Thursday. What I really love about this time of year, though, is is to hear the community focus on on the word gratitude, why they're blessed. So just for kicks, I was uh, just kind of searching through social media, trying to find the most common posts that I would see people use, the hashtag blessed. And this is what I found. Here's the first one. New car, hashtag blessed. Day out with my girls, fresh Manny and Petty, hashtag blessed. And my favorite, (laughs) Cowboys, Super Bowl bound, hashtag blessed, (laughs) hashtag delusional. (laughs) One day it won't be that way. But that's why we recognize our gratitude through the things that we have. We see what we have and that's how we recognize that we're blessed. But what what about these? I lost my job this week, blessed. I got in a car wreck. The other driver left the scene, blessed. My spouse is leaving me, blessed. I now have a new enemy in my life, blessed. It's funny, I don't think any of those popped up in anybody's gratitude list this year, did they? And yet, Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be called children of God. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for you will be called children of God. Listen to that again. He says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for you all will be called children of God. Let that sink in. Really let, let those verses just kind of marinate for a moment. And just, just consider, how many of you, and don't raise your hand, but how many of you are dreading Thanksgiving already because you know you're going to be sitting at the table with an enemy? When was the last time you prayed for your enemy? Really? When was the last time you even thought about your enemy in a way that, that didn't that didn't stir up anger or hate? When was the last time you thought about your enemy without imagining the next encounter, the next fight, and how the next time you were going to get your vengeance? When was the last time you thought about your enemy with any emotion that wasn't anger or hatred? And yet, Jesus says, Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. This could be one of the hardest commandments Jesus gives us. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to consider our enemies. We're going to consider who we are in that conflict. And then we're going to try to figure out how to follow Jesus when he says, pray for those who persecute you. 
to be able to genuinely look into the face of your enemy and to be able to say, because of my experience with you, I'm blessed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that that you are the giver of all that is good, of everything, of all that we have, all that we need, all that we want. It all comes from you. All of life finds its source in you. And there are many things about following you that it's, it's so easy to do. But Father, when you say pray for those who persecute you, we struggle. We focus on our pain, on our hurt, our doubt, our fear. And it keeps us from being able to experience you fully. So Father, my prayer today is that during this time, that you start to reveal to us a little more about who we are, who our enemy is, and what it is that you are calling us to do in the midst of conflict. So that no matter what, no matter the season, your name is glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5. And as you go there, I want to help set the scene of of Galilee, what we're talking about here. Imagine, if you will, a a secluded area, a quiet area, kind of sequestered from the rest of the world. And the people there, they pretty much keep to themselves. And they can do that because where they are, where they sit geographically, there's a lot of rainfall that provides all the crops they would need and some of the best fishing ever. And there's this mountain range that kind of surrounds it, creating this nice wall, so to speak, that protects them from outside invaders. If you ever wanted to start your own community in a way that would keep it closed off, not having to engage with the outside world, this is where you would do it. Now, imagine that same area being invaded by the outside world. <clears throat> the, the big dog of the world, guess what? He finds out about your best kept secret. And so he decides he's going to build some towns there. He's going to relocate some of his buddies there so that they can exploit the land for their profit. And then they build roads there so that everybody from every which direction has now invaded your best kept secret. <clears throat> And now, overpopulation is rampant. Disease is rampant. Plague, different viruses are rampant. Death is rampant. Now you have a better picture of Galilee and the world that Jesus grew up in. So we've been, we've been journeying for a while in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to have a good picture of the area, what we're talking about. But I also want you to know who's in the room. Jesus is delivering a sermon. What does this congregation look like? So in chapter 4, we get a little snapshot. There in verse 23, it says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So the people living in Galilee, the disciples, the crowds, these people, they're on the business end of the boot of the Roman Empire. 
And the big dog who came in and exploited this area was Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipater. So Herod Antipater, he's like the puppet governor of the area, and he arrives on the scene about the same time that Jesus and his family returned from Egypt when Jesus was little. And so the world that the Jesus followers here know is a world that's got, it's got memories of the good old days, of how it used to be. But they're now living in the reality of the Roman Empire. And they've got to deal with the disgrace of knowing that the peace of Rome that everybody would so famously talk about was achieved only because they were being exploited. They were being subjugated. And these people that are coming to Jesus, the demon-possessed, the paralytics, many of them are this way because of the Roman Empire. The inability to walk and talk, in many cases, was a a direct result of the trauma that people experienced through war and occupation. Now, I want you to get a picture of what Jesus is doing here with this sermon, because he's making a big statement here, and I don't want you to miss it. All of those people inflicted by the plague of the Roman Empire, they they come to Jesus, and in chapter 4, he heals them. He proclaims the kingdom of heaven heals them from the kingdom of, the, of Rome, and then what does he do? He sits down. This is a very intentional thing that he's doing. Where, do, where did Caesar issue decrees from? Where did Pilate deliver Jesus' destinies from? Where did any king throughout all of history, where did they deliver their judgments from? They delivered it from the throne. They sit down, And they deliver their judgment. What does Jesus do before he delivers this sermon? He sits down. But what does Jesus' throne look like? This is no accident. He's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And he's letting us know some important things about this kingdom before he ever speaks. He lets us know that along with the kingdom of heaven comes healing without anybody having to do anything to earn it. That's called grace. And the throne of the kingdom of heaven is not some gaudy, pristine-looking throne. It's on a hill, sitting right on the ground. He's letting us know that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of humility. And from this throne... He says, blessed are you who are persecuted. You were salt, you were light. So don't be angry with each other. Don't repay evil for evil. Instead, love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Like he's saying, look, you've just been healed from the kingdom of Rome and now the kingdom of heaven, guess what? It resides in you. The first thing you need to know is this. Don't bring the kingdom of Rome with you. Leave it at the door. It doesn't belong in here. You see, this kingdom is different. And here, we don't just pray for ourselves and each other. We pray for our enemies. You can understand why this must have been hard for these people to understand, to wrestle with. A people whose whole way of life had just been destroyed, who were now being enslaved by the Romans... Jesus heals them from the pains of the Roman Empire, and no sooner than the bandages are removed 
from their wounds, Jesus says, now, go pray for the people who hurt you. Am I the only one in the room who finds this difficult? But this is what Jesus calls us to do. This is what it means to have the kingdom of heaven reside in us. So we have to wrestle with this. We all, all of us, we have to wrestle with this. Because we all have an enemy. We do. As I was visiting with different people, I was hearing people say, you know, Chris, I don't really have an enemy. That's not true. We all do. Here's a way to help you identify who your enemy is. An enemy is the person or people who dominates my negative thoughts. That's your enemy. Do an audit over the course of a week and make note of every negative thought you have and who it's about. If you start to see a common denominator, here's your enemy. But I also know there are some of you who have no trouble at all identifying your enemy. As soon as you hear that word enemy, that person comes to mind. What I want to invite all of us to do, though, is this. When you think about your enemy and as we work through this process, make it personal. Make it about the enemy that's right in front of you. Your enemy is not a political party. Your enemy is not a stance. Your enemy is not a whole group of people. Make it about the person right in front of you. Because, see, that's where the kingdom of heaven really comes alive is between a person to another person. Deal with the enemy right in front of you. If we can have transformation there time and time and time again, I think what we're going to find is over the course of time, the world itself, the bigger conversations, they start to get healthier as well. So what I want us to do today, we're going to take a look at a way of moving towards this idea of praying for your enemy. And I know, I know there are some of you, we're going to go through all of this, we're going to go through our time, and you're going to walk out those doors, and you're not going to be in a place where you're ready to pray for your enemy. And that's okay. But maybe you can take a step in that direction. I'll be honest, as I was working through this, I was able to identify some areas and different enemies from my past that I was able to get to a place where I could finally start praying for my enemy. I I got there. But there were other areas. Honestly, I'm not there yet. I'm not, still not at a place in certain places in my life where I'm able to pray for my enemy. But I took a step in that direction. And so maybe that's where some of you might be, just, just to be able to consider the possibility, the idea of praying for your enemy. Maybe, maybe that's, that's enough for today. So how do you do this? How do you pray for your enemy? This is where it begins. Be honest with God about my pain. I think for a lot of us, one of the reasons why we struggle to identify an enemy is that we don't want to admit the pain in the first place. We don't want to admit that we've been hurt in the first place. We bottle it up. We act like it didn't happen. We, we, we double down on our own inner strength. Our pride gets in the way. Somebody stabs us in the back. We, we brush it off. We're like, eh, no big deal. Somebody betrays us. And we say, that's ah, nothing I can't handle. That, that, that person wasn't that important to me in the first place. Somebody violates us, abuses us. And we pretend like it didn't happen. Church, this is such a silent killer. The pride we feel or the shame we feel, they keep us from being real, being honest about what we're really going through. And when we we start to close ourselves off 
and we don't think about dealing, we're not able to deal with our pain, guess what happens? We start to numb ourselves to our own pain. And when that happens, we start to numb ourselves to the pain of others. I had a, I had a traumatic experience when I was young, and it wasn't something that I didn't, I didn't deal with at the time that I should have. I wasn't honest with myself or with God about the pain that I had experienced. And because of that, there were other points in my life where I became the enemy in somebody else's story because I had become numb to my own pain. I became numb to the pain of others. Praying for your enemy, it starts there. Just being honest with God about your pain. We're going to be in Psalm 139 today because I think it's one of the best prayers in all of Scripture. It's a powerful prayer. If you, if you don't know how to pray, spend some time just reading through Psalm 139. It's going to give you a great model on what good, authentic prayer looks like. But in verse 19, this is how he prays. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You can feel the pain in that prayer, can't you? You can hear it. And and as, as vile as it may sound, this is exactly what he needs to do. He doesn't, he doesn't bottle up his pain. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. He doesn't, he doesn't double down on his own inner strength. He takes his pain and he gets honest with God about it. For some of you, that might be the step you need to take today. To just be honest with yourself about your pain and take it to God. Because God's the only one that can transform it. And that's exactly what God does in this prayer here. He transforms his pain, and we get to see it in real time. And here in a moment, I want to point that out to you. But first, if you can do this, if you can be honest with God about your pain, about the person who hurt you, who wronged you, whatever it is, then you go to the next step. And it looks like this. Separate my enemy from the brokenness inside of them. It's not an easy thing to do. But here's what it looks like. I consider my enemy. I consider why they're my enemy. I consider what it was they did to me. And then I consider the reality that there was a time in their life when they weren't broken in that way. A time when they were innocent. I consider the reality that somebody hurt them long before I ever came along. And because they were numb to their own pain, they eventually would hurt me. And then I consider that the presence of God still resides in them. That the purpose of God for them might still be a possibility. Earlier in this prayer... In Psalm 139, verse 13, this is how he prays. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. This is a scripture that I pray over my daughter. I picked it for her before she was born. 
And it's a reminder to me as I pray this over my Ava, it reminds me that God formed her. God formed my daughter. And that God's works are wonderful, all of them. Separating your enemy from the brokenness that resides in them, it means that you recognize that God made them as well. And that God's works are wonderful, that God doesn't make mistakes. People do. And there was a time, even for your enemy, that the only thing that resided in them was the goodness of God. And when you do this, you're creating the space for your enemy to exist in your own mind, separate, beyond their brokenness. And that's the person you're praying for. You're not praying for the brokenness. You're not praying for the person who hurt you in the moment that they hurt you. You're not praying for all of the the pain that they've caused you. You're praying for the purity and who they used to be and the hope and the possibility that maybe, just maybe, through the grace of God, that the goodness of God is still in there and somehow will overpower the brokenness that resides in them. When I think about my enemy in this way, I... I start to think about the relationships that they have with people that they haven't hurt yet. Places where their brokenness, it hasn't created damage. Once I do that, I can start to put together a picture of the person that I need to be praying for. For some of you, that might be the step you need to take today. To just Consider the possibility that God is the source of life, even for your enemy. And that maybe, just maybe, God might still have a purpose for them. Even if you don't want him to. If you can do that. The next step involves looking in the mirror. Reflect on my own brokenness. this is tough to do as well. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that sometimes we create enemies, sometimes we manufacture anger simply because we don't want to deal with our own brokenness. We don't want to deal with our own issues, our own hangups, the places where we're messing up. Many years ago, back when I was uh, fresh, I think I was a freshman in college, I was in a relationship and it, it ended poorly. It ended bad. It was, it was a very painful ending of a relationship. And that was well before I really began my walk with Jesus. And so I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know how to handle the pain. I didn't know how to deal with the pain that I was going through in the moment. So what did I do? I fixated on all the reasons why they were the enemy, why they were in the wrong, all of the wrong things that they did to me. What do you think that did to me? Do you think that made me a very pleasant, happy-go-lucky, easy-going guy to be around? No. It made me miserable to just sit there and wallow in self-pity. And it took a while, but eventually I got to a place where I could, I could take a step back. And I could look at myself during that season of my life. But when I did that, you know what I, you know what I recognized? You know what I saw? was that I was a complete jerk during that season. I made a lot of mistakes, regrettable ones. 
I realized this. I realized I can't live in a world where I'm okay with my brokenness, but I'm offended by yours. You see, this is the power of prayer. Prayer is not something that I can wield like a weapon to to make God go do my bidding. Prayer is a thing where I open myself up. I become completely vulnerable, transparent with God and allow the Holy Spirit to transform me, to give me perspective, to change my heart. And that's exactly what happens in Psalm 139. One of the most powerful parts in all of Scripture happens right here. See that space between verse 22 and 23? You see, the psalm is a prayer. And this is what prayer does. It changes us. The psalmist, he's just, he's unloaded this anger. He said, God, would you slay the wicked? Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with complete hatred. And after this vicious attack, in his prayer, after he opens up to God about where he really is, you want to get better in your prayer life, maybe for some of you, that's where you start. Start by being real. God meets the real you in prayer. And if you're being the fake you, you're not meeting with God. But right after the psalmist opens up to God about his anger, there's this space between 22 and 23. Claude Debussy was a French music composer. He put it this way. He said, music happens between the notes. I want to put it this way. The grace of God happens between our words, in the space, in the silence, where we listen instead of speak. See, we read that as though he reads verse 21 and verse 22 and then 23 and 24. But that's not how how I see him praying this prayer. I see him just unloading all of that hate. God, would you slay the wicked? And as he's losing his mind, he's spiraling. In his prayer, he, he runs out of breath. And at the end of verse 22, he's just gasping for air. And God's just sitting back waiting. And in the silence, what does he do? He takes a deep breath in. And as he does this, what's he doing? He's breathing in the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit of God do? It starts to transform him. It starts to change him. God starts to work on his anger. Why? Because he was honest with God about it in the first place. And then the miracle happens. And then... We get to verse 23, and this is how he prays. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That doesn't sound like the same person praying that prayer, does it? Because it's not. It's not the same person. You want to know if it's been a great prayer time? You know it's been great. If you leave that prayer, not the same person. You're completely changed. You're different. And that's exactly what happens. 
He unloads his hate. He gets honest with God. And then God transforms it because he becomes aware of his own brokenness. If we own it, God can transform it. And then he becomes aware of his own brokenness. And then he asks God to help him lead him in the way of everlasting. Which is exactly what the next step is. Ask God to turn my negative thoughts into productive thoughts. Not negative into positive, because sometimes a positive just, it's not going to happen. Ain't happening. Don't force an emotion. But even in the midst of the negative, even in the midst of the grief, you pray to God, in the midst of my pain, keep me moving forward. God, I, I, can't, I can't understand this person. I don't know why they did to me what they did. I don't know why they hurt me. Why did they leave me? Why did they abandon me? God, I, I hate them for it. Would you, would, God, would you just take them from this earth so I don't have to deal with them anymore? And then I realize that the presence or absence of my enemy has no bearing on how I deal with my past. And the Spirit of God convicts me as I begin to reflect on my own brokenness. And then I turn to God and I say, God, I, I can't keep throwing stones without talking to you about how I'm screwing up. God, I know there's people out there that have experienced pain because of me. God, there's people out there struggling to figure out how to pray for me because of the pain that I have caused them. I know there are people out there that want to throw stones at me. So how about I drop these stones for a moment? God, consider me. Search my heart. Know my thoughts. Test me. Help me get better. Help me get beyond the areas of my own brokenness. And because God is faithful, what does God do? God leads us in the way everlasting. He leads us to the kingdom of heaven that resides right in here. And see, th this is why praying for your enemy is so important. When you do this, when you create the space for your enemy to exist beyond their brokenness, another thing happens. Praying for my enemy creates the space for me to exist beyond their brokenness. And this is the space where the kingdom of heaven resides in each of us. Apart from the brokenness of others, apart from places of, of anger, of vengeance, of unresolved anger, of, of, of fear, of pain, the space, that, the space that Jesus was leading the disciples to in the presence of my enemies. The Lord has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemy, yet I will not be afraid. I'm not going to be angry. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's right in here. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies, not as a war cry, but as a statement of peace. I can sing praises in the presence of my enemy because when the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I remember the battle has already been won. I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to be angry anymore. 
I found the secret of being content in all circumstances, and I found it because I learned to pray for my enemy. God led me to a place that no brokenness in this world can touch. That nothing in this world can separate me from. God led me to a place where I'm no longer a slave to fear or anger or hate or vengeance or brokenness. And when you do this, you can genuinely look into the eyes of your enemy and say, because of my experience with you, I'm blessed. This is how I want to finish. I want you to find a good posture of prayer, and I I want you to be still. And I want you to think about where, where has God led your mind during this time? Was there a person that, that, that kept coming to mind? Or a situation? Maybe something recent, maybe something from a long time ago. And I would invite you to just, just consider being honest with God in this moment about who that person is or what that situation is. And if you can, just write an initial Don't write their name. Just write an initial that points to them. Just as a way of being honest with God. God, this is where I'm hurting. This is the pain. This is the unresolved issue. And then as you do that, you pray to God, God, show me who you created this person to be. What was the hope that you had for their life? What was the joy that you wanted them to experience? What was the joy that you wanted the people around them to experience through them? What was the purpose that you had for them? Because God, I know you had a purpose. You don't make mistakes. Now show me the purity and who my enemy used to be. And as I do that, God, I, I, want, I, I want you to know I, I am aware I'm aware of my own brokenness. I'm aware that somebody right now is struggling to say this prayer for me. And so I know that I'm broken. And so God, as I struggle to pray for my enemy, God, would you help me get beyond my own brokenness? And in all of this, God, help help me to keep moving forward, to keep moving towards your vision for my life, no matter what, through the pain and through the joy, no matter what, I'm moving forward with you. Lead me in the way everlasting. Father God, you, you are the God of, of reconciliation. When reconciliation is possible, you're also the God of redemption, a God of purpose, a God of direction, a God who continues to work no matter what. And so it's my prayer over all of the storylines that are happening right now in this room, all of the stories, all of the thoughts, all of the incidents, all those areas, that above the pain, above the unresolved anger, above all of that, that your grace is made known to cover it all so that we all can be led in the way everlasting.
and your son's name. Amen. Church, I know this has been kind of a heavy morning, and you're about to go off and celebrate Thanksgiving. So before you do that, I don't, I don't want to send you off like that. Just really quick, raise your hand if you like cranberry sauce. Or you, no, sorry, if you don't. If, raise your hand if you do not like cranberry sauce. I got to see who you are. You're all doing Thanksgiving wrong. <laughs> you are. But as a gift to all of you on your way out... You're going to be given my personal recipe of cranberry sauce that I make every year. I love it. Try it out. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you later.